Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. We've been hella productive this week, so I'm stoked. This is another fantastic episode. This is number 69, and guess what? We saved it for the 69 man himself, Amin Salamani, CEO of Spank Chain, pioneer of the Moloch DAO, all that great stuff. David, why don't you break down this episode? Oh, gosh. Amin has just been uh, a podcast superstar, but he uh, this is his third visit to POV Crypto. All three episodes have been absolute fire. He's uh, He makes it really easy on us, so hats off to him. Uh, we initially, we talk a lot about Moloch. Uh, we talk about, he summarizes what Moloch has done. We, we talk about how Moloch is kind of just this old, uh, legacy type institution reformulated and restructured in the uh, in the new space of Ethereum, and that just allows a lot more efficiency and speediness when it comes to al- capital allocation. Uh, and then we move on to Yang Dao and the genesis of Yang Dao. It's really just a a very Dowy episode. Uh, and then we get into the subject of uh, trustless Bitcoin on Ethereum. Unfortunately, it seems like it's not possible. So sad. We're going to have to leave Bitcoin in the Web2 world behind. Uh, and then we get into Spank Chain and what it's like to to market a crypto company, which I think is pretty cool that, that Spank Chain is in that phase of things. Um, yeah. So again, hats off to, to Amin. Uh, really good orator, really good communicator, uh, super funny guy. I'm a fan of Amin. But some of his uh, opinions on Bitcoin, I feel like were uh, a little off. On so point. you know, had to at least put my two cents. I at least had to put my two cents in to uh, to try to straighten out the straighten it all out. I find that crypto companies doing marketing is interesting, especially ones that did an ICO. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it all. But I'll leave it up to you guys to have an opinion. Christian is a spank holder. I want that on the record. <laughs> I don't even know if I have access to my spank. I may have thrown it away that uh, or got a different wallet address. Oh. Without further ado, please enjoy episode 69 with Amin Soleimani. Amin Soleimani, welcome to your hat trick on POV Crypto, episode 69, just for you. Welcome back. Uh, great to be here. Uh, great choice of, of episode number. 69 is a fantastic number. <laughs> yeah, big fan as well. Um, so Amin has been on POV Crypto twice before. Uh, we originally, the last episode, the most recent episode, we talked about Moloch, uh, talked about DAOs in general, talked a lot about um, Cosmos and Polkadot and Ethereum competitors. Uh, and then even before that, it was just a more general uh, Bitcoin versus Ethereum episode. Uh, this one is going to be a lot about DAOs, uh, a little bit about Spang Chain, and we also want to talk about trustless BTC. Um, but at some point, we'll probably just let it go and see what happens. Um, so... Uh, to start right off the bat, uh, I mean, can you kind of summarize what Moloch DAO has produced? Um, also, yeah. what is Moloch DAO? So for those of you, you know, just joining us, uh, Moloch DAO is a grants-making organization. Uh, it is implemented as a smart contract on Ethereum. It's very simple. has about 400 lines. Um, it has notably received uh, grant, uh, well, funding from uh, the, the Ethereum Foundation uh, to the tune of 1,000 Ether, 
uh, consensus, Vitalik uh, and Joe Lubin, uh, each for 1,000 Ether, so totaling um, 4,000 Ether from those contributors, uh, as well as um, many others to total about 7,000 Ether and right now about $1.5 million. Um, so what it has accomplished so far, it's funded uh, some reports on ETH2. So it started out by funding the state of ETH2.0. Uh, it funded most recently um, the LibP2P report, which is understanding the role that LibP2P built by Protocol Labs, the Filecoin guys, uh, plays in uh, the ETH2.0 uh, network. Um, we funded Matt Slipper, uh, the CTO of Kyocan, to do part-time work on ETH2. Uh, and he produced the initial networking spec, which is what made us realize that we needed to investigate the P2P more seriously. Um, it's also uh, gave a $30,000 grant to Chainsafe uh, for building Lodestar, um, which is their TypeScript client and is uh, probably going to be mostly used for in-browser-like clients as well as JavaScript tooling. Um, and uh, we also uh, have funded a couple other things like um, the Yangdao launch, as well as the uh, a Mixer UI. So, I mean, uh, I know you came onto the show right when you guys were launching Moloch DAO. Uh, it's really kind of a basic stripped down DAO that's meant to really help organize around, uh, you know, continuing to build out ETH infrastructure. What's the experience been kind of being at the forefront of this DAO and kind of managing it, working with different people in this format. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience has been like so far? Yeah, it's been a great experience. Um, it's been a learning experience. Nobody knows how to DAO until you DAO, right? Uh, so, you know, people come up and they're like, we should do blah. And I'm like, that's a great idea. You should do that. Uh, because, you know, I'm not, I don't actually have any authority in the system. Like I have some influence, I have my votes and that's it. Like some, somebody new join and they're like, what's the mission statement? And I'm like, the mission statement is whatever we vote on uh, because you know we could vote tomorrow to have a different mission statement uh, and then change it back. Like, um, and, and getting comfortable with that kind of uh, non-hierarchical um, open uh, or organizational structure is uh, something that um, you know, takes some, some practice. So, uh, so one of the things that we're finding is that like, you know, during the earlier days, uh, it was easy to find people to do things um, sort of pro bono because everybody was excited about getting the thing off the ground. But as the DAO has matured and has more funding, now the bottleneck is about sort of organizing ourselves and, and our resources, um, doing due diligence on projects that come up. And it's starting to be more clear that this is going to take you know, uh, dedicated uh, people. And uh, those people might want to, uh, you know, get paid on a sort of ongoing basis. So to my knowledge, you don't know all of the members of Moloch DAO. Some of them are, um, well, they're not anonymous because somebody knows them, correct? But but um, the whole organization doesn't know exactly who the other people are. Is that right? Uh, that's correct, sort of, in the sense that, like, there are some people that joined as anonymous as anons that I know personally um, and have vetted, uh, but their identity is not, you know, I'm, I'm protecting their identity to the rest of the members. There are also people who I have vetted in the sense that like we chatted on Discord a bit, they proved to me that they had a Genesis uh, account and I said, good enough, uh, I'll 
you know, submit a proposal for you to join. And I don't know who they are either. So I can't remember who made this quote, but I believe you brought it up on our on our last episode of POV Crypto. Uh, somebody called uh, episode thirty four. Episode thirty four. Nice job. Uh, somebody called uh, Moloch DAO is the Model T of DAOs. Uh, and so, can you, after experiencing what it's like to um, work with Moloch DAO, uh, what would you change if you had to do it again, or had the opportunity to redo it? So that's a great question. Uh, it was actually Kevin Iwaki who called it the Model T of DAOs, the Bitcoin. Ah, good guy. Um, and the, the Model T analysis is super apt uh, because there's a bunch of other people who just copied the code, uh, changed the skin, and launched it for their community. So there's now Meta Cartel DAO, you know, being organized by Peter Pan and the Meta Cartel um, Meta Transactions Group, uh, more focused on DAPs and UX. There's Yang DAO, which we helped launch, we'll talk about later. Um, there's uh, I think there's like a Trojan DAO, which is like an art collective in Greece. There's a lobby DAO, which is trying to figure out how to use uh, to pool money for paying uh, lobbyists to uh, get politicians to make uh, Ethereum favoring legislation. Uh, that's still at the concept stage. Um, there, uh, I feel like I'm missing a couple. Um, but yeah, it's been really inspiring to see people take it and run with it, um, even though it's so broken. Uh, in the sense that like it doesn't actually do anything, right? It has no features, uh, which brings me to the next point, um, which is if if we had to do it again, um, what, what would we change? And there's a couple pain points. Right? For one, like for example, for uh, Yang Dao, right? I had to submit four proposals, and each of those proposals was voted on independently, uh, and it would have been weird if one of those like passed and all the rest failed, uh, because then we would like pay the designer and not the developers. Uh, for the project. Um, so we, we want some way of batching multiple uh, proposals uh, or having like multiple recipient addresses that get shares uh, for, for a, uh, a grant. Um, another one is that uh, it still has weak spam prevention. Nobody has uh, spammed it yet, but um, in, you know, what we were thinking about was like, um, if, if somebody, I, I think I talked about this on 34, but like if somebody uh, spams it, they can fill up the proposal queue. Um, it'll cost that you have to do it for a uh, seven day voting period, seven day grace period, 14 days total. Uh, it's a, a, a 10 ETH deposit, so 140 ETH. Um, so you could lock up the, the whole thing for 140 ETH. So um, like, but chances are that that comes from a single member. And so making it increasingly more expensive uh, and raising the proposal deposit like non-linearly for a specific member based on the number of proposals that they have submitted is, is something that I would add. Um, another thing is that uh, we can't kick anyone out, uh, right? You, you can rage quit as a member and take you know your share of the money that you have left at any time, but the, the other member, like if you start spamming, the other members can't kick you out. And because you can't kick people out, it also makes it so that uh, you, you, you end up not letting people in who you might want to give a chance, but you're cautious about, um, that you might be more willing to do if you could at a later time kick them out. Um, and so uh, having like a forced rage quit uh, option would be really helpful. Um, what, one thing I'll add though, is that uh, we did also just launch the Moloch pool. Uh, and I just deposited the, the first ether into the Moloch pool. And so you can go to the Moloch DAO UI and, and see the uh, Moloch pool. And so what, what that does is it automatically does follow on grants uh, and you it's a permissionless. 
So if you put in um, Ether into the pool, uh, then uh, if Moloch gives 1% uh, of its funds to a project, then the, that project will also be able to go to the pool and withdraw 1% of the pool's funds uh, because it synchronizes uh, with the proposals uh, that uh, Moloch has. And if there's grants which are identified as not having any sort of uh, tribute or capital uh, put up, um, the, the, you know, the, the tribute value would be zero. Uh, that's what identifies it as grant, and, and, and uh, that's what makes the Moloch pool then uh, also uh, dilute its shares and give some of the value of the pool to that grant recipient. So, um, yeah, if, if you want to support Moloch, but you don't want to have to be vetted uh, by the members and voted in, you can uh, donate to the pool. So this is a solution for people who, like, I originally thought about thought about doing this, but I didn't really want to have to deal with the complexity of, of you know, working inside of a DAO. So I thought, like, maybe I can just send in Ether into into the DAO and then and then just, like, not be a member. Um, but you told me that that might cause some issues because then people could rage quit with my Ether and then my Ether is just turns into a donation into their coffers. And so the pool solves that problem, correct? Correct. The, the pool solves that problem. You donate to the pool, and so long as you have your money in the pool, it automatically does follow on grants, but you can also withdraw your money out of the pool uh, at any time. I'm not a fan of on-chain funding ever, but if I were to be a fan, I would want it to go into a that, the Moloch DAO pool. That would seem like the only viable, non-incentive-breaking place to put on-chain funds. Anyways... I don't really want to go into on-chain funding, but I just wanted to yeah. throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> Not. We'll, we'll come back in episode. At the point of all this. <laughs> so before we leave the topic of Moloch DAO, um, I kind of want to present one uh, illustration I have in my head of, of the way that this is work, the way this is going to work. And so um, the Moloch is the Model T of DAOs, and it's very simple, simplistic, very basic. Um, pretty pretty rudimentary bare bones just to get the to get the uh the mechanism up and running uh it seems like the way that this is going to work is the same way that cars developed and grew in complexity like you had the model t and it was just like an engine and wheels and a steering wheel uh and then you can add things like an alternator and a carburetor and a battery and then you can also add like you know, some more like suspension and stuff like that. And these things, as you discover what you need, you can add them on to DAOs on top of like the new DAO on top of that. Um, is that kind of how you envision the growth of, of DAOs going? Um, yeah, I think there's uh, multiple angles for this, right? Uh, so there's uh, three prominent projects that I know about, um, Moloch being one sort of angle on this, and uh, the, the two others, one being DXDAO uh, and the other being Aragon. Right, and we all had different like philosophies going in. So Aragon's like the mindset was, how do I put a company on the blockchain? Uh, DXDAO was how do we scale up coordination to as many people as possible, and Moloch was how do we give grants in such a way that we protect the sovereignty of uh, the donors uh, so that they can withdraw. And so like the only thing I tried to get right was the the rage quit functionality where you can exit, um, and uh, it, the other DAOs don't have that. Um, like you cannot, like if you put your money in an Aragon DAO, you have to go through a voting process to withdraw it. Uh, they are working on it, but uh, I haven't seen significant progress being made in that direction. And to, for, for me, that's makes it sort of a non-starter because uh, when we were trying to recruit people for Moloch, like as soon as I said, they're like, how do we get out? And like, whenever you want, they're like, okay, I'm in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like pretty easy sell. Uh, so 
Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think building on top of the core like rage quit functionality is the direction that I would want to see this type of thing go. Um, and you can add other stuff to a, a more secure code base, like add ERC20 support, um, et cetera. I'm curious to get your take on like, what is the current state of DAOs on Ethereum as well as in the greater crypto ecosystem? Yeah. So if, if you want to build a company on the DAO, then, uh, you know, Aragon's your friend. Uh, if you want to participate in like a pseudonymous uh, coordination experiment, that's like a weird hive mind starting to take over, you know, aspects of Ethereum infrastructure, like the Dutch X exchange, but by Gnosis, then like, test out the X Um I think, I think most importantly, the thing that Moloch accomplished was uh, shifting the narrative, right? Like we were still living in a PTS DAO world uh, and now uh, Moloch made it cool again. And uh, everybody with, you know, the support of the EF and, and consensus realized that uh, this is a thing that could work. Uh, it doesn't always have to explode. Um, crossing my fingers, hoping that, you know, my DAO doesn't explode. Uh, I wrote all the tests. If it does, it's totally my fault. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so why does the support of the EF and consensus matter so much for kind of getting uh, support in the ETH community? Well, they're the community leaders, right? Like Vitalik and Joe, their co-founders, like they have a lot of ether. Uh, having their buy-in for these, these DAOs shows that uh, this is a viable way of coordinating. Um, it it's more just a signaling thing than anything else, right? Um, you know, it's, it's money and signaling. So, you know, when they funded Moloch, I was in the Meta Cartel DAO Telegram and they were like, whoa, this is a big deal. Uh, it, it, it provided some degree of validation. And, you know, that group has different goals than Moloch, even though there's some overlap with the members. Uh, but, you know, they're running their experiment. They're figuring out how to coordinate around funding the DAP development. And, uh, more people took that as a sign that like they should maybe also buy in and, and help donate and, and, uh, figure out what projects to fund. Why do you think that Joe and Vitalik joined so early? Is it because of your relationship with them and you working in consensus or, uh, or is it because of like, you know, the merit of the actual DAO? Um, well, clearly it wasn't the merit of the DAO. Um, because you know that was all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's 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 both. It's uh, I did know them, right? I worked for Joe for a better part of a year. Um, I've also gotten somewhat closer to Vitalik uh, in the last um, couple of months, and uh, I proposed it to them to to join, uh, and they accepted. Uh, they thought it was a good idea. Um, they joined it in order to sh show the. Ethereum community that you know they're willing to support these kinds of experiments for the EF as well. It it served a, a purpose for uh, showing that they're willing to decentralize uh, their funding, um, and uh, for for the EF in particular, um, like it, it, they they often have uh, trouble doing grants through it because Moloch has uh, like much faster turnaround time than the EF. Uh, so the EF, you know, if, that's like when, when you think about this process, right, you're thinking, okay, I, I want to identify a need. Uh, I want to find a person and I want to secure funding. Like that is the process. And uh, in, inside the EF or inside consensus, that process could take months, right? But something like Moloch, like, you know, one of the EF researchers that joined on, on their behalf, like in the Discord uh, proposed uh, that we should 
do a you know ETH2 uh, validator client GUI uh, that allows you to manage um, your keys and your balances, and you, you see how much you're earning, and you see your uptime, and and it's sort of a dashboard, right? And like uh, this is Danny, and so then we we everybody tweets it, uh, and we we put out a request for proposal, and then that attracts uh, people who. Uh, are interested and then we do some due diligence we review the proposals we interview the candidates and then we put up a proposal uh to, to the DAO, and we get an answer in seven days uh about whether or not this thing is going to be funded and so that whole process can get way shorter and, and to be on the order of weeks uh the shortest that we did this was uh matt slippers like we need a eth2 test runner that makes sure the clients are in sync uh and then we tweeted the next day we found the guy interviewed him uh this is antoine he's now the cto of white block and we uh, said, you know, he can do this. Uh, let's, you know, submit the proposal. Seven days later, he had the money, or like, you know, he didn't have the money yet because it's a seven-day grace period. But he was, uh, he knew that he was going to get the money, and so that whole thing took ten days. That's like the fastest I've ever known about a grant-making organization do that ever. So I, I think uh, that is now inspiring people within um, the EF research team and, and people working on E2 to submit more proposals for more things. Uh, and I'm, I'm you know, trying to get people into this, this habit that like we have other funding mechanisms that we, we can leverage in order to move faster and do more things in parallel. Hey, before so just talking up, comes in, I wanted, I just wanted to interrupt and say that I was hanging out with Zach and Antoine when you guys did that, which is kind of funny in SF. But wait, what happened to Zach Cole? Is he not the CTO of White Block now? Is it Antoine? Uh, Zach got promoted to the CEO. Oh, all right. <laughs> what a, what a guy. All right. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> yeah. All right, go for so, it. Talking about efficiency in general, uh, that's kind of one of the OG views of Ethereum, right? It's supposed to be this hyper-efficient platform um, where middlemen get cut out, um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer economies are much more direct. And so uh, it, it kind of seems like the uh, the instantiation of Moloch is, is living up that narrative where, you know, it would take this centralized, where we have an actual centralized entity, the EF, to compare this to where it, it, they are this, you know, kind of legacy finance type system that is just dealing with the creation of this new financial system, but they still are, are shackled by the weight of legacy finance. And so it doesn't seem like any sort of company is ever going to be able to ever become super efficient, especially when traditional finance has been, you know, hundreds of years old by now. But we have this new Dow thing that is becoming hyper efficient and allocating capital faster than traditional companies have ever done before. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. I don't really have a question, but if you want to comment on that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the idea. Like that was the theory, right? Mm -hmm. uh, going in, we're like, maybe this will become a, you know, signal for attracting developers and talent and money and people will be able to build things that we all find useful. And then it's like, okay, well, we actually have done some of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think as long as Malik continues doing those things, like it's a success in, in my view. Um, and uh, it could potentially scale up through new donors or uh, more money from existing donors or horizontally scale up by uh, other forks that focus on uh, other things like the marketing DAO that you were saying. This idea that uh, one of the benefits of Moloch DAO over something like the EF is speed to uh, kind of vetting and putting out a grant. Like, why do you think that is? Because generally speaking, when I think of something that's decentralized and requires kind of voting, 
like generally you think that that is actually going to take longer, especially with scale. Like, do you think it's just because you guys are small right now? Or do you think that the actual structure just beats bureaucracy? Uh, well, it's, it's that there's a seven day hard limit, right? Like you submit a proposal, you'll have an answer in seven days. Now it might not be the answer you want. Uh, maybe we, it limits our due diligence, um, but it also means we don't like spend a lot of time on things uh, and, and potentially waste it. Um, and part of, part of it is is just like structural. Like uh, we don't have to do any paperwork. Um, there is no paperwork uh, in the formation of Moloch uh, <laughs> because it's it's not a security. It's just a bunch of people pooling money um, and and giving grants. Um, and so uh, there's no banks involved. It's its own escrow agent because all the money is on chain. Um, and that kind of thing and like there's no um there's no like a gatekeeper right like i was trying to i'm not going to name, name this proposal uh, proposal at all but uh, i was like trying to pressure one of the grant recipients to like make some you know adjustments to their proposal and then somebody else in the the dow just submitted it anyway uh and then i got outvoted uh and that's fine that's by design it means i can't be uh, a bottleneck. And if people vote that way, then that reflects the, the will of the DAO. And then my options are either to go with it or decide that I no longer want to play this game and pull my money out. But as long as so the game theory ends up being that as long as, uh, you know, it's it's not sufficiently annoying that I want to quit, then like, I'm, I'm going to stay in. So I, you know, I, I want to do moves uh, to fund things, but not in the way that will make everyone else quit. So it's, it's like trading perfection for efficiency. Yeah, exactly. Like we'll get more things maybe wrong. And like right now it's, it's also smaller. It's not dealing with as much money. So uh, it's, it's not uh, putting as much stress on the same people. Um, whereas like the EF, it's, a, a, you know, a small team um, that has to do a lot of grants. Right. Um, and, and part of part of Malik, it's like, it's sort of ad hoc, right? Like if you're good at the thing that the grant is uh, for, like you can help do the DD and inter and so it can pull on different people in the ecosystem that have diverse viewpoints and, and skills. Very cool. So uh, Molox was started when Ether was around like $120 or so. Um, and now Ether is at like $200. And I actually think one of the best ways that Moloch is going to be able to scale at least his treasury is through the increasing ETH price. So how much um, US dollar value do is in Moloch right now? Do you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it's about uh, one and a half mil. One and a half mil. So, like, say ETH price goes to three or four hundred dollars. That's a couple, like, a couple extra million dollars in the bank. Do you think that the scope of what Moloch DAO will fund will grow with the larger treasury that it has? Absolutely. Uh, as as it has already. Uh, oh, really? Like, it has already. Well, now, Can you, you talk know, about that? After, after the price went up, like, we started being more willing to to fund more things and like bigger ticket items. Like the thirty k for Lodestar was a uh, a, pr a pretty big uh, grant and that's like to fund you know an ETH2 client uh, like mm. directly was that one lump sum uh, well it's actually going to be like the, they'll uh, that was like part one of three so if they come back for more in like a couple of months then we'll evaluate those proposals at the time uh, and that's like part of the reason that we don't really you know it's it's easier to do smaller sums with Moloch uh, than it might be for the EF like EF writes you know big ticket grants but those are expected to last you like a year year and a half and so forth. Whereas like with Moloch, the, because the overhead's lower, it's like, I don't need to do as much due diligence because I'm not writing as big of a grant because I can ask you to come back every two months. Right. 
So say hypothetically there is this individual who likes to write articles uh, and likes to write articles about Ethereum and wants to do more of that, but can't really find the either the time or the incentive to do so beyond just Twitter followers and, and likes. Uh, would you think that... Clout huh? What, what was that? Clout chasing. <laughs> uh, would you think that it's reasonable that Moloch Dow might fund a writer who writes uh, things that are accessible to the layman as a uh, an effort to market Ethereum? So, like, say this writer goes out and writes uh, words that are easy to h- comprehend for the muggles out there who aren't in the crypto world uh, and gets them uh, onboarded onto Ethereum. Do you think that's a reasonable thing that Moloch might fund? Maybe. Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, Moloch, you know, uh, it, it doesn't have like a, you know, uh, fixed right. mandate, right? Uh, and like, they're the only way to tell what Moloch will fund is to submit a proposal and see if it'll fund it. Uh, and so like Kevin Owaki brought up the idea of um, doing like college fairs uh, to assemble um, uh, job offerings that are open within the Ethereum community and then go there as a representative uh, of, of the Ethereum community and uh, share the open job opportunities uh, with uh, new, new graduates and wanted to run an experiment through Moloch. And I think the cost was something like three, three or four or $5,000. Uh, and it's uh, in the voting period right now, but it's 700 to zero uh, sh- shares. So uh, it's probably gonna pass. Um, and you know, overhead on that was very low. Uh, submit the proposal, uh, people vote, he'll get the money, and then we can run that experiment and see how it goes. And if we like it, then we can do more of it. Um, so, and that's like a marketing type of thing, right? So. Um, th- then again, there's also like things that have failed. Uh, that there's a graphic novel uh, idea that would have also been marketing, um, but like more more targeted um, to, to a different community, and that didn't get the, the funding. And so, you know, uh, maybe it, it won't get funded, but it might. <laughs> uh, only one way to find out. Do you see Moloch Dow kind of draining over time, or actually increasing in in total value over time? Or maybe staying staying it, flat. Uh, it's really hard to tell because mm-hmm. uh, prices move very suddenly. Sure. Uh, and so, like you know, one uh, percent of the money, or, or like a thirty thousand dollar grant, is like two percent of the money, right? So we could do this a couple times, um, but then you know, if we if we've spent like twenty percent of the money over the next like six months to a year, we'll have shrunk. But if ETH goes up more than twenty percent, then in dollar terms, it's all the same. Uh, so, and, and like, it could attract more money, uh, or like more, more money by the same people. Cause like, uh, I think we, we still haven't gotten to the point that we've, um, you know, the Lindy effect sort of applies here uh, in the sense that like, if the longer we have a track record of showing that we can successfully make grants that have positive impact in the Ethereum community, the more willing I expect people will be to join and uh, put up their money and have a say in how the money gets spent. How the rate of people joining Moloch DAO, has that slowed down, stayed the same? Yeah, the, the rate of people joining has slowed down in terms of uh, coming in with fresh capital. Uh, I think mm-hmm. once uh, the EF and uh, Consensus joined, we had a, a couple other people uh, join. Um, for example, the uh, founder of Funfair, Jess San, came in with 250 ETH. Um, 
and and so it's it's some individuals coming in, you know, hundred ETH here and there, um, not quite as much as as the launch, um, and I, I think that's like partly just uh, people are waiting to see how it goes. You you could say that uh, you know Meta Cartel sort of counts uh, in the sense that it's not joining Moloch, but it's joining another thing to uh, focus on another area of Ethereum uh, development, and I think um, that is uh, growing. Uh, more more quickly because it's it's more applicable like Moloch funding ETH2 and, and mixers and stuff is like more protocol level stuff um, so it applies more to just like people who have a vested interest in Ethereum working um, but then the meta cartel is like you know everybody who's building a DAP uh, might need you know some tool in common and so it's worth it for them to pool money to have that built. I want to hear a little bit more about Yangdao. Just to preface this, uh, it's very interesting to kind of see the different approaches between uh, the Bitcoin and the ETH community in supporting Andrew Yang, who I think is a bona fide pro crypto candidate. Um, for example, in the BTC community, going a lot more in the kind of like traditional route, um, a company, Open Node, is working with a super PAC to make sure that he can accept Bitcoin and Lightning payments, uh, which is a little bit different of an angle than the ETH community, which is like, let's start a DAO to support Andrew Yang and other things. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe compare and contrast kind of the different takes? And I, I feel like this is just a small example that where there's a fractal of like kind of these different approaches uh, from the two different communities. Well, we have different hammers. Uh, you, your hammer is send Bitcoin. Uh, and my hammer is like write a smart contract uh, and like organize, you know, come up with a new form of social uh, organization that is efficient for this uh, use case, right? So you guys have done the send Bitcoin thing. Uh, good job. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really important. Uh, it's great that he can accept Bitcoin. I mean, what are they, they're going to sell it immediately, right? <laughs> it's not like it, um, you know, but that's, that's nice. Um, we don't know that. <clears throat> you know, he can you're right. those stats and it can go to the moon and then he has a massive war chest. That's true. Uh, he could speculate on Bitcoin as part of his presidential <laughs> uh, strategy. Um, wouldn't, well, I don't know, uh, might work. Um, <laughs> but, you know, our, our, our strategy is mostly, I, I didn't even think of Yang. So let me, let me tell you how this, how this actually came to be. Um, I met a guy uh, at EdCon last year in Toronto uh, named Ken Yang, uh, no relation to Andrew Yang. Uh, he just also is an Asian guy named Ken Yang. So we recently had Andrew Yang on our podcast, also no relation. Right. <laughs> so, so Ken comes over and I was like talking about Moloch as I am want to do. And he's like, you know, this is a really interesting idea. Like how I had dinner with Andrew Yang last night. Like how do we bridge these worlds? And I'm like, what if we just made a Yang Dao uh, and like did one for Andrew? Because like Moloch is, you know, in the abstract, it's just a grant making organization. It's like sort of like what a super PAC does. Uh, well, what is a super? It's like, okay. Uh, it's an organization, you give money to it, and then the super PAC decides how the money goes. Well, it's actually an interesting upgrade on a super PAC because super PAC, you can't pull your money out of a super PAC, right? Like when you give those Bitcoins, that's, the, you know, through open note or whatever to the super PAC, that's gone, right? Uh, but like with Yangdao, not only can you vote on how your money is spent uh, proportional to the amount of money you put in, but you can also if at any point you're un dissatisfied with how the money is being spent, you can take your share and leave. And this is all encoded at the protocol level and you know can't be altered by any central party. So if you are a Bitcoiner who is uh, 
more interested in decentralization than you are Bitcoins, uh, or at least have uh, some room in your heart uh, for <laughs> decentralized organizations and experiments thereof, I implore you to join the Yang DAO. <laughs> well, you got to like Andrew Yang. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think it's, it's cool to see that, you know, he's open to crypto and he's, uh, his, his performance in the second debate was uh, pretty cool because he broke the shit out of the fourth wall and like called all, all the other candidates out for the, you know, reality TV show that presidential campaign has become. Uh, and like his, his answers for uh, like global warming, uh, it was like, we're 10 years too late, like get higher ground. You know, um, it, it's like he is telling it like it is. It's like per, when, personally for me, when I hear all the other candidates talk, like it hurts. Uh, like I feel ill. Uh, but when he talks, I, I don't. Uh, he, he like makes sense. You know, he says all the words I like. I'm not sure he's going to win, uh, but um, I, would, I would like to support it. And and further, like super PACs, uh, like with with Yang Dao, we get the opportunity to support it in a way that I think makes more sense, which is like funding memes uh, and like, you know, grassroots level marketing and, and just how Trump PR won. stunts. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like a super PAC might be like trying to buy television ads and like much, much more right. expensive, lower ROI uh, strategies. <clears throat> Wrong generation. Exactly. Yeah. So what was your role in, in Yang Dao? I tried to do as little as possible. Uh, so <laughs> I have uh, a number of other projects. Uh, that I'm committed to, including Spank Chain, which uh, you know, the CEO of. So uh, I uh, I recruited Peter Penn uh, from the Meta Cartel DAO. He organized that. He was the the rejected one in Moloch uh, to PM uh, the deployment and the initial um, development of Yang DAO. And Yang DAO is actually using the same uh, UI that Meta Cartel is using. Uh, their upgraded UI and and um, I submitted the proposals for Moloch uh, to uh, Peter Pan and Ken Yang um, for the PMing and leadership of the Yang DAO. So Ken Yang is the one who's really driving it um, and, and is coordinating with like you know the, the other sort of people who uh, are, are in the Yang Gang um, and and they're both like uh, you know community managing. The Telegram group has over 100 people in it now. Um, so uh, I, I sort of just um, helped put them in the same room and then they made it happen. Um, so would you say it's pretty self-sufficient by this point? Uh, yeah. So there's, uh, a bunch of people who donated $40, a bunch of people, a couple of us who are putting in like a thousand die. Uh, so Yang Dao is also different than Moloch in that it uses die, not weath. Mm. Um, and so it's easier for new users to understand because they just see that, you know, everything's uh, dollar denominated. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't do too much. I mean, I'll put out some meme ideas. There were some ideas around uh, involving porn stars, which I could be uniquely uh, suited to helping with. Um, maybe Stormy Daniels or something down the road. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, we live is, in a weird is world. Gonna, what's Andrew gonna do with the die? Is he is he selling it for dollars? Like what you said? Mm. Yeah, kind of curious how that's gonna go down. So Andrew doesn't get the die. Uh, the memers get the die. Uh, so like, you know, the workers, yeah, uh, whoever is, uh, you know, working for the Yang Dao. So if, if we could do like a meme contest where like whoever gets a top post on, you know, Yang Gang uh, gets it, uh, gets like, a, you know, a bonus. Um, you just picked up the wrong hammer, Christian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
it actually cannot have anything to do with Andrew Yang. It is not affiliated with him. He can't help with the coordination. He can know about it, um, but like, it, it's not going to consult him or his campaign. So the yeah. Dow can turn against him. You know, it could. All right, that's, all right. That's how Dow's work. <laughs> that's, that's the only question I have. Everyone could rage quit, and like whoever's left could be like, uh, you know what? Fuck Andrew Yang. We're we're all in on Bernie, uh, mm-hmm. and like. Who knows? Maybe, maybe that'll. I sort of doubt it, right? Because the people who who control most of it are um, at least willing to give Yang a shot and yeah. uh, support his campaign, uh, not directly, but like support his, um, you know, making make memes and, and promotional materials. Yeah, the name of the DAO is Transient. The DAO itself is not right. To swap it out for Bernie Dow, probably don't even need to make a proposal for that. And anyways, to to, to back things up a bit, like part of the reason that. I think Yang Dao is important is like largely just to show people what's possible um, it, it, to show them that this other form of social organization can be used in a real world, uh, you know, high stakes uh, coordination environment. Um, and if we saw other people make DAOs for other candidates, I would be thrilled. Um, you know, it's not necessarily only to uh, pump Andrew Yang. It's like to uh, show people that, uh, you know, uh, there's other other values uh, value value to other projects uh, built on Ethereum, where Moloch is uh, the Model T for the inside of Ethereum. Yang Dao could be the Model T for the outside of Ethereum. Uh, yeah, so that's and the, it's the same code, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. it's just that like Moloch, you know, doesn't really make it very far in terms of showing people like what's possible. Like, uh, there's a lot of people who might not be in the Ethereum community or paying attention, uh, might not. Uh, see Moloch, and, but then they might see Yangdao uh, because they're interested in the presidential uh, race. And so then they follow that thread and figure out that like, oh, this is a doubt with on Ethereum. It's like, I can put money in this vote and like credibly take it out. Da, 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 da. Right. A, lot of, a lot of people say, you know, uh, show me the use cases for Ethereum. And I think this is a great one. Uh, mm-hmm. It would be really, really hard to build this on Bitcoin. Which candidate is, or which, yeah, which president would be better for crypto in your opinion, Trump or Yang? Uh, Ooh, that's actually. I don't know because crypto may or may not be correlated with like, uh, the fracturing of our social fabric, uh, and if it seems that Trump is more fracturing, um, but Yang also might bring legitimacy. Uh, which could also have a positive effect. So I'm I'm really torn. Uh, I I think I, I think know. Trump might be good for Bitcoin and Yang might be good for Ethereum. But that's yeah. just a gut feeling. Maybe that's the case. I mean, I don't think that I don't think that Yang is good for anything in particular. But uh, I definitely know that oh. Trump Trump smashing things is definitely good for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Probably bad for everyone else though. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're like you know in the big short. You're like, well, I hope the whole world falls apart so my Bitcoin bags get pumped. <laughs> I think my like uh, my my bags on like present day America are much bigger than my Bitcoin bags, to be honest. Right. 
So speaking of Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, I mean, I know that you, in comparison, in contrast to most Ethereum community members, you have your foot kind of one in each camp. Uh, you have your beginnings in Bitcoin, right? And I know you like Bitcoin more than the average Ethereum. Uh, and trustless Bitcoin bridge to Ethereum is something that I think is a really, really great idea. Uh, and I was wondering if you could kind of speak to what you w would see value from a, a, tr a trustless Bitcoin bridge to Ethereum. Uh, yeah, so I think it was like Charlie Shrem last week tweeted. He's like, whoa, this whole lending thing on ETH is really cool. Can I, but can I use BCC? <laughs> and like everyone in Ethereum sort of facepalm. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, uh, yeah, we, we wish you could. Um, but uh, th the bridge that you're talking about doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, you cannot have trustless BTC on Ethereum. Uh, and the reason is because the opcodes to support that are not in Bitcoin today. And so uh, at, like to get those opcodes into Bitcoin, you'd have to murder like 10% of all the Bitcoiners. Uh, and it's, just, it's just totally impossible. It can't be done in its current form. Can't be done in its current form, uh, as far as I can tell. I am, however, talking to uh, some Bitcoin cash devs uh, who are more open-minded uh, about changing uh, protocols, and they might be the first to uh, add the opcodes that are necessary. And we might see trustless Bitcoin cash on Ethereum before we see Bitcoin. But that is great because that's how Bitcoin likes to roll, right? You like to have somebody else run the experiment for five years. Uh, and then once they show that it's safe, then maybe, you know, the conversation around updating those opcodes will be uh, easier to have, or maybe not, who knows. Um, right now, there's uh, there's wrap Bitcoin on Ethereum, but that is federated. Uh, it's essentially in a multi-sig and the members of that multi-sig need to uh, sign off on uh, uh, redemptions of, of that Bitcoin, right? And I think that's led by Kyber and, and some others. Uh, and there's, there's two interesting uh, threads that are currently being explored. Um, so one is like synthetic Bitcoin uh, on Ethereum that is backed by Ether. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead, and it works exactly like Maker does, uh, except instead of using a dollar ETH price feed, it would use a BTC ETH price feed, and it would liquidate your, you know, synthetic Bitcoin, let's say SBTC, uh, if, um, you know, the value of your ETH collateral drops below some, you know, like 120% or 150% of uh, the, the value of, of the synthetic Bitcoin. Um, now, that is weird for most Bitcoiners because they don't like inflating the supply. Uh, because if, if you, you know, make synthetic Bitcoin, suddenly uh, it's all capped. And, and sort of the same, like when I create a synthetic dollar, like when I create a DAI, I'm increasing the, the dollar supply, right? Bitcoiners really like that 21 million number. So there's another proposal uh, called TBTC, and this is uh, being developed by Suma and Keep. And this is a way of locking BTC. Yes, James Presswich uh, of Suma. So you lock your BTC on, on Bitcoin and then you, you still collateralize it in Ether for more money than the Bitcoin. Uh, but now you haven't in in increased the supply. And when I asked them about it, they, the answer that I got was basically that like, uh, they confirm my suspicions that these extra steps were largely in order to market to Bitcoiners uh, so that they would be comfortable using this because it adds some engineering complexity that otherwise uh, wouldn't be necessary if you were, because it has the same price feed liquidation components that you would need to do synthetic Bitcoin. 
but also the part where it needs to integrate with Bitcoin itself and uh, have custodians of of the uh, the Bitcoin that gets deposited, and then um, you know a lot of extra work. So let me just jump in here real quick. Synthetic Bitcoin does not increase the Bitcoin supply because it's not redeemable on the Bitcoin blockchain. So let's just let's just get it out there. Like you can have you know whatever fractional Bitcoin with any of these future contracts. There's a lot of ways to have paper Bitcoin, but it's not Bitcoin unless you can actually redeem it on the Bitcoin blockchain. So uh, I just want to make that clarification. It is redeemable because you can trade your synthetic Bitcoin for actual Bitcoin because the value is equal. And so you can swap it and then redeem the same value on the Bitcoin blockchain. Then you have to convince someone to give you your, their real Bitcoin for a synthetic Bitcoin, which is a totally different market situation, but it still is not making more than 21 actual Bitcoins. This is true. Uh, and, and, you know, futures are sort of the same way. It, it gives you exposure to Bitcoin without needing to hold mm -hmm. the underlying asset. It's a derivative product, right? But with that being said, you know, I do think it's very interesting. All of this is really kind of hinging on how useful is this DeFi and ETH ecosystem, right? Is this something that is going to stimulate people to go through the painstaking BS to get Bitcoin on it, or is it not? Um, so I'm interested to see how it plays out. Uh, yeah, I mean, how much, I, I forget the numbers, but like there's uh, the amount of wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum is like approaching the amount of Bitcoin locked in Lightning, right? There's like 360 Bitcoin, wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum. I don't know how much is in Lightning. It's over a thousand, but... That Hello, listeners. I'm currently editing the podcast. And uh, as of August 10th, there is 563 wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum and 827 Bitcoin in Lightning Network. I mean, again, like the, I think this staked uh, or locked up BTC and Lightning metric is kind of a vanity metric. Like mm -hmm. lightning is a completely different thing. Yeah, it's totally different. Um, it would be the same as like something like connects like payment channel network. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that there's an appetite for it. Um, I mean, the De DeFi stuff is really cool. Um, pe people being able to lend uh, BTC on, on Ethereum would be neat. I think like, um, granted, you know, doing it with like wrap Bitcoin comes with, you know, now layered, uh, risk, right? So the first you have the risk of the custodians and the federation, and then you'd have the risk of the oracles and the price feed, and then you'd have the underlying collateral risk, um, plus any risks to contracts that are being used. So those all need to be accounted for when when you're using something like wrap Bitcoin on ETH. So the whole Ethereum versus Bitcoin debate has basically been the whole genesis of this podcast. And uh, I, Andreas Antonopoulos uh, illustrates this as Bitcoin is like the apex predator in the ocean. It's like the shark. And then Ethereum is like the apex predator on land. And so these two things are apex predators in their own territory, but they don't ever converge. Uh, and I initially disagreed and I kind of thought that like Bitcoin was the apex predator in Asia and Ethereum is the apex predator in in America. And eventually these, these networks are going to grow and, and butt up into each other. If you're telling me that trustless BTC is impossible, 
a kind of how I'm thinking about this now is like Bitcoin is the apex predator of Web 2 and Ethereum is the apex predator of Web 3. And Ethereum basically is Web 3 or the Internet of Value, the global digital asset settlement layer. How do you view what's your mental model about these things? Yeah, um, I, I think the Bitcoin digital gold meme uh, is pretty strong. Um, and so people like to hold Bitcoin as a hedge against the global economy. Um, I think that like Bitcoin's big bull case, right, is like central bankers start adding it to their reserves to hedge against like dollar debt. Um, and even because they think uh, it'll be something like digital gold, like they hold gold, why not hold Bitcoin, right? Um, the, the bull case for Ethereum is a little bit different. It's like central banks decide to uh, launch <clears throat> di digital currencies for their economies on blockchains. Uh, they uh, operate these payment networks through the central bank far more efficiently than uh, interbank networks can. Uh, they don't need to do deposits in banks um, anymore that you can have a, the central bank essentially opens its balance sheet to all the citizens. And then when they decide to integrate with other countries, uh, they realize that they would prefer to do their settlements through a neutral settlement layer that nobody can tamper with or control. And so then they plug their, uh, you know, bank chain into Ethereum. And then if they, you know, are willing to do that, then they might be interested in helping secure that system. And so they buy ETH and stake it. Um, and both of these are not things that happen without significant grassroots uh, economic activity. Um, because the the world does not like the, the you know the the incumbents are the last to move, right? So we all need to build, you know, hold Bitcoin, uh, make its value go up so much that it can't be ignored by anyone on Earth anymore. And we need to make Ethereum uh, as a, a settlement platform like valuable enough and, and securing enough assets that. The, the rest of the world takes notice and wants to plug into that. Um, and I think that uh, proof of stake is really going to be what makes the difference here. Uh, and so proof, proof of stake is part of the reason that I think it'll be the most secure is because it's the most competitive, right? There is no KYC there. You know, all you, you, you have 32 ETH, uh, you can stake. And that's the lowest barrier, I think, to staking and, and helping secure a network that will exist. And so I, I would expect it to be the, the most secure, um, just for, for that reason. And, and like if you know it needs to sustain a high market cap for that, and because part of the market cap is derived from, from fees and from economic activity, then Ethereum needs to win uh, additional economic activity on the chain. Whereas Bitcoin doesn't really need to do that. Bitcoin can just sort of sit there uh, and grow in mindshare. So how do you feel about the? Uh, uh, do these things compete? Are they apex predators in the same territory or do they exist in different dimensions? Um, maybe it's like a, a Venom and Spider-Man type of thing. Like uh, Bitcoin is Venom and, and Ethereum Spider-Man and like they compete, <laughs> but like, you know, somebody worse comes along and then they join forces uh, uh -huh. as always happens. Right. And it's like, you know, uh, I, I think like we, we also don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and like the narrative has all changed uh, a whole bunch of times, right? So like in 10 years or something, in, in, in 15 years, 20 years, it might be more obvious that uh, the 21 million hard cap is not sustainable. Uh, maybe maybe 
it, it is, but I, I doubt it because the uh, it, it might even even knowing that it's not sustainable in the future, you still might be inclined to uh, support it today because the increasing value today makes it worth uh, memeing it such that you eventually get to the point that you have enough value in it that uh, at that point it makes sense to then maybe change it, but not changing it, not saying that it's uh, not sustainable today because you're like, well, if we say it's not sustainable today, we'll never fake it till we make it all the way to the end where like then we can change it. But if you eventually do get to the end and you still don't want to change it, then nobody's paying the security budget for Bitcoin. And at that point, Bitcoiners might be more inclined to figure out ways to uh, secure their Bitcoins uh, in a place that makes it less likely to get 51% attack like Ethereum. Uh, so you, you could see these things be compatible later on as uh, narratives shift, as uh, maybe, you know, um, if, if there's like an existential crisis for Bitcoin where you had two options, one was add a couple opcodes to get BTC on ETH, so uh, you had to pay less for your own security, or uh, up, increase the uh, total number, the Bitcoin issuance past 21 million, what would you do? You know? Um, <laughs> The the FUD about the mining reward is just relentless from the ETH community because you have to justify all the bullshit that you have to that you're going through right now. Like everything that I feel like uh, is driving a lot of design decisions on ETH and ETH two is formulated on this assumption that uh, that Bitcoin can't pay for its own security, uh, which I just find is kind of hilarious because in the past six months Bitcoin's price has uh, you know six x or three x or whatever and we're all waiting on hands and, you know, waiting for Bitcoin's block award to get split in half. In terms of buying power, you know, the buying power of the block award has only been increasing, even though the actual BTC issued has been decreasing. So I don't know. I think this is just FUD. Like this, if Bitcoin this... 100x is, then the buying power of the block award, even after several halvings, is going to be much higher than it is right now. Until there's no block reward. But then right. you're assuming that no one wants to pay for the ledger. Like, like it, it, I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's like, oh, so if Bitcoin's so successful, it's going to get to the point where, you know, it's being used so much, but the block board's going away. And like, you know, it's like, this seems like just a really like round roundabout kind of like trying to justify, you know, having inflation. Um, yeah, uh, it is trying to justify having inflation. That's exactly why we're having this conversation because Ethereum justifies inflation by putting security as its highest priority. Uh, Bitcoin puts monetary policy, you know, uh, uh, like transparency and, and, and uh, having a predictive, like being able to tell what it's going to be forever today as its highest priority. So, like, you know, this, this ultimately isn't going to get resolved uh, for another 10, 15, 20 years, but like, uh, you know, I, I think that it's still an important point. Like, if, if Ethereum was designed the way Bitcoin is, then it would try to have, you know, no issuance, but then, like, you might see the security drop a lot. And that's, like, not anything anybody in Ethereum wants. <laughs> so, the, uh, kind of the interesting thing to me is that it seems like there's this double standard. It's like, oh, we're going to have inflation. So that way we have security for forever. But at the same time, issuance is going lower than Bitcoin. Fuck you guys. Like, that's kind of what I get. That's the cool thing about proof of stake. The architecture of proof of stake enables that. We are literally getting the best of both worlds. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I feel like there's definitely trade-offs and y'all just don't like to admit it. 
we admit all the trade-offs man uh we <laughs> i'm here saying that we're trading off man uh there's there's less uh monetary policy like uh, determinist uh, determinism uh in the mm -hmm. future so it's um that's what we trade off uh for security right uh, a lot of people get you know really hypothetical stuck. Uh, yeah, hypothetical security on our hypothetical ETH2 chain. Like on our hypothetical proof of stake system. That's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, you know, uh, and, and like maybe we, we get to that point and like the number go up still is holding true. Uh, and like in 20 years, everyone's like, you know what? That was all FUD. This wasn't really a big deal because number is still going up. Yay! Uh, now, if the day ever comes that that stops, you know, uh, right, like there's no back, uh, there's, there's no backup plan, right? It's kind of like like global warming. Uh, you know, there's. You so can't I have a quick question. Twice. I, mean, I do have a question. With that, with that being said, it's like, okay, what what's the timeline for one number stop going up, and then two, what's the block reward going to be then? Because that's, theoretically, it could happen in, let's say, 15 years. That's what? Three halvings from now. So the issuance got cut in half three times. So now we're talking about a sub two BTC issuance. But let's say our uh, block reward. But now let's say Bitcoin is a million dollars uh, a coin. Like right. that's still out significantly more to secure the chain in terms of buying power than it was today. So like, what's, what is wrong with that? Um, nothing. I think that's great. I hope that works for as long as it does. Uh, I, I, I suspect that there might be an expiration date to that model. Uh, and if that ever happens, then uh, this argument like doesn't work anymore. And Decred is uh, really and, happy. <laughs> right. And then you have to make some trade-offs uh, and you have to pick what trade-offs you want to make. <laughs> that's all we're saying. We're not saying that it won't work for a while. Uh, we're saying that I wouldn't you know, it depends like what timeline you're trying to design your system for. Uh, if you're trying to design it on a, a 20 year timeline, 30 year timeline, or like a hundred year timeline, um, you know, and, and like Bitcoin uh, as its shelling point has, well, 20 year timeline, uh, like that's it. Like, or, or I'm sorry, 30 year from the inception to, to 20 more years from now, uh, that's when the, the block rewards are much, much lower than, than they are today. Um, but that's, uh, that's like the decision, right? That everybody's making. Uh, is like we will meme the 21 because we believe that more people will buy it number will keep going up uh that'll secure the chain forever uh, i feel like we're, we're sort of going in circles now um we are maybe we should <laughs> not also not the first time we've done this on this podcast <laughs> yeah uh there's there's no way to really know right um i have some bitcoins mm -hmm. uh I hope it keeps going up. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> That's a good way to summarize Bitcoin security. It's like, fingers crossed this works. Yeah. You know, I think that's just an ETH thing. I think that the whole transition to proof of stake, that's a lot more of like a finger cross this works yeah. than, yeah. you know, the Trade off one fingers crossed for another. And, uh, and, you know, Bitcoin's price is going to keep going up. Like, I'll be the first one to say that if Bitcoin's price stops going up and it doesn't become a universal measure for value, then most likely it's going to fail. But if the price keeps going up and we get to that F curve and then it actually levels out, you know, with a massive security budget, even, you know, for the next 140 years, uh, as well as, you know, a massive 
mempool that is signaling to miners that uh, there's going to be there is going to be demand for future block validation, then I mean, it doesn't really feel like fingers crossed. It just, you know, that's how things are going and they're playing out perfectly. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, I, just have, I, I have to push back on, on, the, on, on the, on the, on the, on the FUD, yeah. but it's all good. All good. Uh, I mean, we're kind of going over an hour here. I mean, uh, we probably got to cut out a little bit of uh, rambling on my part, but we want to talk about or should we uh or should we close this off yeah let, let's let's tie off the last few minutes with what it's like to market a crypto company um i mean i believe spank chain just started marketing efforts which i think is a probably probably not a first but kind of a, a big milestone for crypto at large where this uh ico company uh generated a product kind of iterated and grew and expanded and now you're in this marketing phase what's it like to uh, be marketing uh your crypto product yeah, so we haven't. Uh, we're still working uh, up to it. Like we haven't. You know, we're not at full speed yet. We're figuring it out. But we have a, a very cool video coming out to market SpankPay. Uh, so look out for it? that. Um, so, yes, nice. uh, Emily Willis. So SpankPay is our uh, payment processor for crypto transactions. So we have two merchants signed up, and now we hope to put it on every other adult site. Um, and so we're trying to raise uh, a lot of awareness around that. And um, so this involves uh, buying ads, making deals, um, buying traffic, um, and so we're engaging partners to do that. Uh, and then you know you you play a marketing game. You're like, well, what's my funnel? How many conversions am I getting? What where is the ad spend uh, most effective? Um, and uh, I think another thing is, and we saw Augur actually implement this uh, or. or uh, uh, say that they're going in this direction is uh, affiliates, right? This is how the whole rest of the internet works. Um, if you want somebody to find out about something, uh, there's a whole network of attention that you have to traverse. Somebody else knows to tell that person and that person wants something to do it. Uh, so if you have a lot of people's attention, you can um, sign up as an affiliate. And so SpankChain is launching its own uh, affiliate program uh, just the same way that like other campsites do where like if you bring a user in, you get 20% of their spend for life and same with model referrals. So if you bring a model in, you get 5% of their um, earnings for, for life. Wow. Um, and we're also That's exploring uh, subsidies. So um, one of the things I'm looking at is to uh, allow models and affiliates to essentially mine spank uh, by um, <clears throat> you know, uh, streaming and selling clips uh, as well as for affiliates, like bringing in users. Um, and so the model I was thinking about was doing a, um, uh, like a thousand spank an hour. So, um, every hour, the, like if, you know, a hundred dollars was spent total on the site and a model earned like $50 of it, then they have a 50% chance of getting that thousand spank reward. It's like, it's like and, 10 or $15. Spank is a dollar. It, spank is a stable coin, right? No, that's booty. Yeah. Booty is oh, the okay. one that's pegged. Remember? Spank is, uh, spank is the central yeah. bank. Yeah, the spank bank. So uh, I think I think that's a compelling idea because you know part part of the advantage that utility tokens have over traditional equities is that uh, there's a lot less paperwork around distribution, uh, which means that you know the like the premise of uh, crypto projects is that uh, you know you should be able to have some sort of ownership stake in the network that you're participating in helping uh, make more valuable, and so. Uh, being able to distribute uh, Spank to, to performers as well as to affiliates will, I think, not only um, make, make them feel more aligned, but uh, if 
if they're getting a faucet, you know, of, of spank, then like they're also inclined to try and make that more valuable, uh, which I think has really positive uh, incentive aligning uh, properties because then they'll, you know, talk about it and uh, share about it um, and tr try to make the network uh, successful. Why do they want spank? Uh, Ooh, actually, well, my question will answer that question. I mean, will you uh, kind of bridge marketing efforts to the value of Spank token? Can you kind of take us through all the steps that go into how marketing might add value to the to the Spank token? Uh, yeah, I mean, if more people are using the site, uh, then we're generating more uh, fees, and we every month we burn booty uh, that we buy from our fees, uh, and the Spank Bank uh, will mint booty proportional to the fees that we burn and distribute that booty to all the stakers. So if you're a staker in the Spank Bank, then your booty income is proportional to our fees. And so uh, you can, um, you know, uh, you, you want to see like our uh, company be successful and uh, you want to see more merchants adopt Spank Pay. You want to see more uh, users tipping. You want to see more content being sold. Um, so uh, I think that more awareness would uh, certainly drive all of those things. Very cool. Yeah, so if you know porn sites that want to integrate SpankPay, you should uh, join our Discord, DM me, and uh, contact them, and let's uh, get it up. What about where can they find uh, SpankChain on, on Twitter? Yeah, so it's at SpankChain. SpankChain.com? And SpankChain.com, correct. Wonderful. Where can they find you? I mean, Seoul. Uh, first name, first three letters, my last name uh, on Twitter. Very cool. Anything else? Well, who else do you want to hear from? Anything else you want to shill before we sign off? Uh, yangdao.org and uh, dao.yangdao.org. It's the mm -hmm. Dao website that just launched. And uh, What's the minimum for entry? 40 die. 40 die. Not bad. $40, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Come uh, meme with us. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> We're in the, the Yang gang. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, thank you for your third episode on POV Crypto. You were our first guest. Was he our, was he our first guest, Christian? Technically, Tyberg, but I'll give oh, him yeah, the, right. the real first guest. Tyberg was, first uh, guest, was a chess sure. run. Yeah. First guest and first third repeat, for sure. Thank you, Amin, for being a, a huge supporter of our show. Yeah. And thank you guys for having me. This is always fun. I love the pushback. Um, you know, uh, Bitcoiners, you know, uh, they, they always let you know what they think, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I love it. Uh, I hope I hope you guys keep doing it. Tell the whole world, get on Bitcoins, pop my bags. Uh, it'll be great. <laughs> We're all right to the moon together. Appreciate it. All right, guys, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. You know where to find me at CK underscore Snarks. Five star reviews, guys. We keep bringing you the best and the greatest in the crypto space and keep it entertaining. So reward us with those five star reviews. Yes, yes, please. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. I mean, take care. If not this true, then you might as well tell a lie. If not, then it's up for you too.